Welcome to a new podcast. This is Everything with Everett, a talk show podcast hosted by Everett McConaughey from Boise, Idaho. The purpose of this production is to share thoughts, voices, and information to further a discussion on who we are as individuals, communities, and a global presence. Everything with Everett is open to all topics of discussion, faith, religion, history, finances, and well, everything. Follow, like, listen, and subscribe. Visit EverettMcConaughey.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by Everett McConaughey. Was your family always capturing birthdays, weddings, the holidays, or even the kids' first recital on VHS tapes? Those are pretty precious and treasured memories, aren't they? Well, I was surprised to learn a few years ago that VHS tapes are not a timeless medium. In fact, they are reaching the questionable years of their usefulness and stability. VHS tapes can sit in storage for years, and depending on how they are stored or even how they were made, VHS tapes often decay under a process called tape rot. Don't lose your timeless memories and treasures to the mechanics of yesterday. Email Everett McConaughey at vhs at everettmcconaughey.com to learn more about how your tapes can be digitally recaptured and placed on a digital medium that can be shared with the relatives at your next family reunion or passed down for several more generations to enjoy. Hello, everyone. Today, I would like to talk about hospitals, emergency care, and insurance. It's definitely a system that I think that we all know is kind of lingering in the background. Obviously, nobody wants to have a unexpected medical uh, bill or emergency situation, but we all kind of trust that we have things taken care of until that situation happens and then it's like mm, maybe it wasn't as maybe it wasn't as planned out or taken care of as i thought um this was inspired a few months ago back in may i believe let me take a look at my own bill so actually this was april the bill was from may but so a couple of months ago um, at this point, and I'd like to kind of share my own thoughts of using my health insurance and going to the ER for a situation that I couldn't justifiably not take care of, and the sense of, I guess, guilt on my side. It just it felt weird to be utilizing a system that our country has that we shouldn't be avoiding if we really need it. Anyway, I also found some other good videos. Um, these are both from 2000, 2018, 2018. Um, one is from the PBS news hour entitled why, why there are shocking costs to your emergency room bill. I will include links to the videos in the video dis- in the podcast description. And the second one is called Why Medical Bills in the U.S. Are So Expensive. The second one is about 14 minutes and 56 seconds, and the first one is about 6 minutes and 59 seconds, so about 7 and 15 minutes, respectively. And then my um, section about kind of my experience is going to be pretty uh, short and simple, so... Looking at about a 
45 minute podcast or so. Pretty quick little flight with us together today, wherever you are, maybe driving to work or winding down at the end of the day on your lunch break. Who knows where you are, how you listen it. But I appreciate you uh, turning on this episode and seeing what we have to share. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into the first one. So this one is from PBS NewsHour, and then I will do my little bit, and then we'll do the uh, NBC one. And then at the end, I'd kind of like to talk about... um, Medicare, Medicaid, and I think Medicare. Maybe it is Medicaid. I'll look that up while while we're playing one of the videos. And uh, then we'll wrap it up. So here is the first one from PBS NewsHour. Why there are shocking costs to your emergency room bill. Now, the rising cost of visiting an emergency room. Health care costs remain a big issue for many Americans, and ER prices are one part of that problem. A new analysis found the cost of emergency care has nearly doubled in the last eight years. William Brangham is back with a look at a special reporting project that is chronicling the effect of ER prices on individuals and families. The stories surrounding some of these ER bills are stunning. A man in Texas with a broken jaw ends up in an ER. He's stuck with a nearly $8,000 bill, even though he was in a hospital that's in his insurance network. Parents in Virginia take their one-year-old daughter in for a cut on her toe. 30 minutes later, she's out, treated with just antibacterial ointment. Their bill, over $900. Or how about a $629 hospital bill for a Band-Aid for a baby girl in Connecticut? These are just some of the 1,300 anecdotes that Vox is collecting. It's part of a big reporting project that's looking at the 140 million ER visits Americans make each year and why they cost so much money. Sarah Cliff is the journalist behind this project, and she joins me now. Welcome back to the News Hour. Thanks for having me. So you collect 1,300 so far, maybe more than that now, um, ER bills from people all over the country, and you're trying to, I guess, d- discern a pattern in all of these bills. What broadly speaking? have you found thus far? Yeah, so I'd say there's three big findings from this reporting project. The first is that basically every emergency room visit has something called a facility fee. This is the price of walking through the door, seeking care, um, and most people don't know about this. I didn't know about this until I started this reporting project. We know that those facility fees are really high. They're usually the majority of the bill in those cases that you were mentioning. And we also know they vary a lot. One hospital across the street from another hospital They might have facility fees that look nothing like each other, but it's really hard to find information about them. You usually don't know what your facility fee is until you receive a bill from your hospital. You can't call ahead and ask what theirs is. No, no, you can't call ahead and ask. These are privately negotiated between hospitals and insurance companies. So it's a difficult market to be a patient in, to actually know how much you're going to pay when you do go to the emergency room. So that's one of the big findings. What were some of the others? So we've seen a lot of issues with out-of-network billing at in-network emergency rooms. Um, One of our stories looked at this man in Texas who wakes up um, after being unconscious, left in a Texas This is the broken jaw story. This is a broken jaw. So he wakes up with a broken jaw, starts Googling, um, you know, is my hospital I woke up in a network? He finds out it is. He feels relieved. But then it turns out that the surgeon who does his jaw surgery is not in network, and he receives an $8,000 
bill. And it turns out this is pretty common, especially in Texas, to have out-of-network providers working at in-network emergency rooms. And again, it's really difficult for patients to find that information. You might think you're safe like this patient did and then get a bill a few months later, which shows you really weren't safe. Have these costs been the same all along as in just now we're paying attention to it or or they've been changing over time? They've been going up much faster than general inflation in the economy. But I think one key factor here is that deductibles are rising very, very quickly. So a lot of us, most of us who have insurance at work now have a deductible above $1,000. And that means we actually see our health care costs. Instead of the insurance just kicking in everything, we're expected to pay more. So I think we hear from more patients who are, you know, paying that facility fee versus who might have had their insurance cover it in the past. In one of the stories in this series, you feature several analysts who argue that ERs are acting like monopolies, that they are monopolies and that they act that way. What does that actually mean? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, pardon the interruption. I know you were really listening intensely to this episode. My apologies, but I'd like to take a moment to let you know that there are other people who love this podcast as much as you and like hearing some really cool, interesting topics and discussions. And if you have a brand, product, maybe you have a podcast yourself, if you would like to advertise in this podcast, either a pre-roll at the beginning of an episode, in the middle, just like you're hearing right now, or at the end of podcast episodes, please let me know. I would love to help you connect with the listeners just like yourself with whatever it is you would like to get uh, to their ears. Just email advertising at everettpodcast.com. Again, pardon the interruption. I will get you right back to this episode that you're listening to. Thanks. So it means that patients often have little choice when they go to the emergency room. A lot of the cases I write about are people who, you know, it's late at night, it's the weekend, it's the holiday, everything else is closed and the emergency room is their only option. So they're kind of held, um, you know, hostage a little bit to whatever prices the emergency room wants to charge for the care. They don't really even have another option. You know, one of the cases you mentioned earlier about this little girl who got some ointment on her toe and ended up with a $900 bill, um, that was a case that happened on the weekend when the pediatrician was closed, urgent care said it wouldn't see a pediatric patient. So the ER essentially becomes the only place you could go. You can't really shop at all when there's just one option. And with all of these different types of costs, obviously knowing what your insurance does and doesn't cover and what your deductible is is part of it, but are there other things that consumers can do to try to protect themselves from having this incredible surprise when the bill shows up in the mail? I think certainly asking a lot of questions. It can be pretty intimidating to be in these situations, but asking what is the facility fee? How much am I going to expect? When you're in, sitting in the emergency room. When you're, if, if you are capable of it, and granted, like there are people who are unconscious, there are people dealing with severe medical um, situations, so it's not always possible. But if it is possible to ask those questions, I would say not to be afraid to do so. Uh, you know, reaching out to the hospital after you receive the bill to ask questions about, well, why was it coded this way? Why am I having these fees to protest the bills? Um, doing a lot of that in writing can be helpful, so you actually have a record of those um, interactions. But I think one of the frustrating things I've seen for a lot of the patients I've covered, a lot of times there just aren't good ways to protect yourself, that you know, it is very, very hard to put this on the consumer as their responsibility to kind of be a good shopper in this case. 
In your series, you also quote some people who argue that, that this is largely hospitals profit-seeking, that this is why the costs are going up. What do the hospitals argue in return? I, I assume they're saying, no, 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 we're not just trying to make more money for ourselves. Yeah, so the thing I hear the most often from hospital executives is that it is expensive to run an emergency room. They have to be open 24-7, ready for stroke victims, for gunshot victims, and they are required by federal law to see everybody. They are required to get everybody to stable condition. They can't have someone die at their doorstep. So they argue we have lots of unpaid bills. We have to keep the lights on. We have to keep things running in case of those emergencies. And I certainly do think there is some truth to that argument, that emergency rooms are expensive places to run, but the place where the experts I've talked to become skeptical of that argument is that all the fees are really high, that you know they're charging this facility fee to come in the door, then they're charging $800 for the eardrops, they're charging $8,000 for the oral surgery, that doctors are, you know, it's not that you pay this fee and that you're in, but that there's really high charges even after you pay this fee that is supposedly there to keep the emergency room up and running. Sarah Cliff of Vox, thank you so much. Thank you. And the video ends by saying one in five U.S. adults visit an emergency room every year. So going into my personal, um, the whole reason for this podcast is back in April, I had an issue going on for about a week. I, you know, I wanted to tough it out and, you know, not be like, oh, I need to go to the ER. Um, but I also like looking back, there was a lot of kind of stigma that I was like, where did that come from? And I feel like it's a, it's a bit ingrained in our psyche and our uh, country. Um, we're supposed to be the best nation in the world. We're supposed to be the most advanced. We're supposed to have the best healthcare system. Yet, we're also pressuring people not to use it. And then when people need to use it and have massive bills, then either they're mooching off the system because they got free care that they couldn't pay for themselves through Medicare or Medicaid. And then um, if they, you know, have a huge bill that were like, whoa, this is ridiculous. Then it's like, oh, well, you should have just, you know, not gone to the doctor. And I think that that's not very healthy. That's, you know, a lot like the whole toxic masculinity situation. It's the same kind of concept. Like, no, we need to be pro-health to the point where, and pro-life to where it's okay to call out of work and not get crap from your coworkers or your management about why you didn't come in. Because you don't do anyone any good by coming to work infected, it's sick, um, if you're not able to focus, then you're not, you know, doing your work proficiently enough and you're costing your employer money. If you're actually infectious with like COVID or a cold or a flu, some communicable disease or virus, then you're potentially risking all of your coworkers just to get money on your paycheck. And that in the long term then causes a ripple effect where other people are calling out or doing the same. And that causes a, a negative work environment. So I wasn't feeling good back in April and de definitely didn't feel like it was anything transmissible. Felt like it was something personal. Um, I noticed that I was feeling 
uh, foggy in the mind, just felt like I was really having to focus on concentrating. Like it's hard to describe. Um, I wanted to do this podcast like right after, but I was also waiting for the medical bills to come because I wanted to kind of have that to be part of the picture as well. Um, but I, so I had gone this week where I had felt like just kind of aloof, I guess I could describe it. And anyway, so I Googled some of the, the symptoms of it, just different uh, things that would cause kind of a mental disconnect is what I would describe it as. Like I was present, but at the same time, like I could kind of like, oh, we're doing this. And then it was like back out. It was almost like I was disconnected from my conscience. And so I Googled symptoms of that, things that could cause that. And it kind of came back to like anemia, um, like blood cancers, um, kind of indicated maybe an internal bleeding type of situation or low um, iron or hemoglobin or something. So I was like, well, that's concerning. But I was like, you know what, I'll, you know, wait and stuff. Anyway, and then I was having bouts of dizziness and it just was getting to the point where I was like, okay, this has been a solid week. I was at work and I would just find myself just kind of like mindlessly sitting there. Um, I had like kind of no concept of time like i was like i'd be i'd be sitting there and then it was like my mind would click and i'd be like wait how long have i been have i been sitting here is it super obvious to people just really kind of a paranoid type situation and anyway so i i was definitely just getting to the point where i was like this is feeling really serious this is not normal i don't normally feel this way this isn't you know I just couldn't justifiably be like, oh, well, it's it's okay. I'm just getting through a cold kind of a thing. And so uh, anyway, things were, I Googled it. Things were pointing towards maybe like a blood loss situation or a low iron type deal. And I definitely don't recommend Googling things. Cause, you know, like we all know, you can WebMD yourself to the grave and find a lot of answers that point to a very negative, worst cause type situation. So take it all with a grain of salt. Definitely, if it looks like it's pointing towards something serious, you do need to acknowledge that. And I think it's it's important to, to share that. But also consider your source. Um, run things by family members and run things by um, people that you know. And if... If it sounds like a case of you need to go to the ER, then you really should go to the ER and and treat it seriously, take it seriously. But if you're just by yourself and you're Googling something and WebMDing your symptoms, then yeah, you could make it worse by not having a independent and neutral mind in the mix. So... Got to the point, made it through my whole work week, was just like, okay, this is weird. Called my mom, said, hey, these are my symptoms. This is what it sounded like. She's like, yeah, that definitely doesn't sound good. Um, probably should go to the ER or something um, or urgent care. It was a Friday evening. So I was like, well, I'll, I'll wait for a bit. So I, I stuck it out and I, you know, at work, I was like, I should go, you know, walk around and just maybe get some exercise. But then I was like, what if, you know, I am having some type of 
bleeding thing or whatever. And what, you know, I was worried about passing out and I was like, what if I pass out somewhere where nobody else is and no one's going to see me in the regular course of their duties on a Friday night. And you know, that could just be bad. So I just stayed parked at my desk and didn't tell any coworkers that night this was going on. Uh, again, still having to very like hold on to that leash of staying focused and, and working. But um, I eventually told my fiance, I was like, you know what? I think we need to go to the hospital tonight. Um, I just, oh, so part of the web MDing, I found, found the symptoms of like uh, blood loss and iron deficiency, anemia, and I happened to take some high potency um, iron. And I took that a day before. Granted, this didn't fix all the symptoms, so this was kind of what led into my decided to go to the ER was I took this high potency iron and it was like a light switch. Things got so much better, like very noticeably much better. And so I was like, oh my gosh, that really indicates that, you know, maybe that's, I'm on the right path to whatever this is. So I take the iron and I'm like, well, I can just, you know, use this, get through. And it helped for a few hours. And then it kind of started creeping back. And the next day, like, I would take a take an iron and then um, it, would, it would improve. But then it kind of would, like, slip a little bit. Definitely didn't ever get as bad as it was originally, I would say. But it was clear that something bigger was still happening. And I do want to caution that, you know, you do need to be careful with taking things like iron. It is a heavy metal and too much of it can damage your liver. So again, you know, they, they say it's not good to just pop pills and trying to cure something or look for whatever. But in my situation, I was definitely very desperate and I was willing to take that risk. Um, just to see if I got any relief from it. And again, I was still kind of, I was in that trial phase of like knowing I might need professional help, but seeing if there's something I could do on my own to fix it. And it seemed like a reasonable, uh, thing. Obviously I wasn't doing like a surgery on myself or finding a way to make some pseudo over the counter drug type thing. I took a legit supplement that, initially seemed to help and and did change the course of some things but ultimately didn't totally um rid myself of it so the next day i uh, went through work all that jazz i just went over and i told my fiance i was like hey when you get off work can you take me to the er like i i just can't justify you know i was like should i just take an ibuprofen and just sleep it off and I, again i was having like the dizziness and just there was some pain to it. I just did not feel right. And I was, you know, I was like, what if I pass away in my sleep? What if it gets worse? What if, you know, I, I truly, I had no answers to confidently say this wasn't an emergency situation. So we ultimately agreed to go to the ER and, and we went in and I, I remember like pulling up, like finding a parking spot. And I was just like, it was like, like I was a 10 year old kid again and I could just like hear my father, 
you know, I remember he had issues in growing up where he would kind of cry a wolf and, you know, get out of school or whatever, but we never did that, but we were always projected on, like, we were going to do that. We were trying to circumvent the system or trying to take advantage of it when in reality, like, I, I never said if I was sick growing up until, like, I couldn't feel my legs that's when I knew it was bad, but I, I didn't want to say that I was sick because I didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to stay home. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to power through. I wanted to be somewhere where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be home. And if I was sick, then I would hope that it would line up on a weekend when I'd be at my mom's house. Like, you know, I'd, I'd rather be around her feeling sick than my father. And I remember when it, the day that I broke my arm in sixth grade. I wanted to go go back to school, even though I had my arm in a cast. And he's like, "No, we're gonna you're gonna stay home today." And I I remember being so just mad that I didn't get to go back to school because I didn't want to be home with him. I mean, it wasn't like particularly horrible, but it just he wasn't someone I wanted to be around. Anyway, but pulling into the hospital, like into the emergency parking lot. And I, I had him in my head, like, you better be sick. You're going to be wasting your money. You're going to waste your time. You're going to waste your this medical insurance. You're going to wait, like, just all this, like, nitpicking, aggressive meanness was, like, in my mind as I'm, I can't justifiably not be here at the ER to seek professional medical assistance for issues that I don't know what was happening but yet then I, as I'm about to walk in the door, I'm thinking I'm wasting other people's time. I shouldn't be here. And that is such a, na- a nasty part of our country. And I feel like so many people politicize health and they guilt people into just dealing with it versus being a wuss and or weak and actually seeking help. In other countries, like, they don't worry about sick time and things like that because they're pro-life, they're pro-health, and they want you to take care of yourself. Even if, you know, that means everyone's paying into the health system or maybe it's not, you know, as perfect, quote-unquote. But our healthcare system isn't perfect. I mean, you know, yes, you have the, the, the stories of socialized healthcare where surgeries aren't the best and you don't get the, you know, top of the line knee replacement type thing. You know, they have kind of an economic version and then they have a extra out-of-pocket buku version, which we have here in America arguably too, but still, like, you cannot say that our healthcare system is perfect or anywhere close to it. So I go into the ER, I tell him, like, I'm not feeling like myself. And the lady's like, oh, you mean, like, suicide type? And I'm like, no, like, I think I might have, like, an internal bleed. I'm just, I I don't feel good. Ended up only being there, like, two hours. Um, Great care. Uh, Went to the same hospital that actually saved my life the day that I was born, 30-some-odd years ago. Um, and they did a great job. They very, felt very professional, felt like, excuse me, felt like they took me seriously. And I could tell I was, you know, I was reassured that they weren't seeing anything of concern. 
but also they were hearing me out. They read through the medical history statements that I prepared to kind of share what I had been feeling in the days leading up to that moment. But ultimately they, they ran all their tests said, I came back looking like a million dollars. Everything was fine. Uh, I got some, you know, hydration fluids and they said that they thought that it was probably just like a, a bug or a virus that was going around because COVID was kind of wrapping up. And I think I had just gotten my um, second or first shot right around that time. And so they're like, well, you probably just got a bug. People are like changing like hand washing habits and stuff like probably just something that caught up with you. And, and it probably was. But again, I couldn't justify not going to the ER. It was something that needed to be taken care of. And, you know, I don't know what I would have done without insurance. Like, I, I'm, I've been really proud of the insurance that I have with my employer. Um, I'm thankful that I pay, I feel like such a trivial amount every week out of my paychecks compared to what I've paid for insurance in the past and had... Like in the past, I've had to pay, you know, the $70 every paycheck and then have like a $2,000 deductible. And it's like, I don't have this kind of money. But I feel like with my insurance that I have now, it's so great because I'm only paying like, I think the original cost is like 30 some odd dollars a week. But through a wellness program that my employer offers, um, it drops it down to like $12 a paycheck. So I actually make up the difference that I would spend on insurance. I put into my retirement. And so I think that's a, that's a huge perk that employers should be offering. Like we'll take care of your health coverage and that stuff. You invest for your, like that's a win-win to me. I, and that's what I love about my employer and, and the situation I'm in. But I felt like my insurance really kicked in on this. Cause I was like, Oh crap, this is going to be an expensive you're fine, you know, checkup type thing. And I also didn't want to put it off to the next day and go through an urgent care because I was like, what if urgent care is like, you know, we don't have the equipment to test this stuff. We don't really know what's going on. Like, I just didn't want to have two bills. I didn't want to have two different facilities just to go to urgent care to, quote, save some money and then have them be like, yeah, you should go to the ER. I was like, you know what? The ER, it's midnight. They've got all the tools to really get this analyzed now and give me some answers. It's, it's a higher premium, but you know, I'm not going to have that $200 bill at one place. And then, a, you know, a couple thousand dollar bill at the next place. I, I wanted to just go to the place where I was maximizing my dollars. So the, I got two bills from the hospital. I can't find the other one. But it wasn't as big as this first one. Um, the first one, just for the the visit, they billed over $2,000, which just blows me away. Um, and that's just for, let's see, that was for an EKG, emergency room bill, uh, IV infusion, laboratory, pharmacy, radiology because they took an x-ray of my chest um and then some adjustments came in after that but so all those things they were legit services rendered and, and all that has a cost but 
had I not had insurance, I would have been looking at at least for that, you know, two hour visit. I would have been looking at close to uh, two, three, four, maybe even $5,000. Like it could have been expensive. And thankfully due to my uh, insurance and the co-insurance and so they knocked down the rates because of their, you know, in plan uh, agreed upon stuff and then uh, the co-insurance, everything. That $2,000 bill jumped down to just under $500. So I'd, I'd rather pay, you know, 500 versus 2000. So that's, that's a heck of a deal. Insurance does a good thing. If you have a good insurance company and a good employer who actually cares about what you will end up paying in an emergency situation. If your employer is just, you know, getting the cheap, insurance coverage plan just to be like, yep, we offer benefits. Never mind the fact that you're going to have to pay more than you ever make from them in wages to actually get medical care. That's a problem. So anyway, that was my story. You know, I went to the hospital cause I felt like I needed to, I couldn't justifiably say that it was fine and I didn't need to go. And I think that we need to, destigmatize utilizing a healthcare system that we already have. It may cost a lot of money, but there's also other things, you know, to look for. There's Med- Medicare, Medicaid, depending on your age and situation. Um, I did just look it up. Medicare is a federal program that provides health coverage if you're 65 or older. Um, if you're under 65 and have a disability, no matter your income, Oh, wait, hang on. It says medic. I thought I was going to like impromptu make that sound better. Uh, Medicare is a federal program that provides health coverage if you're 65 plus or under 65 and have a disability no matter your income. So if you have a disability and you're basically forced into retirement, then Medicare can cover you under 65. And Medicaid is a state and federal program that provides health coverage if you have a low income. And they will work together to provide you with health coverage and lower your costs. So Medicare is for old people, basically, and Medicaid is for poor people. So I'd like to kind of touch on that on the other side of this next video. This one is called Why Medical Bills in the U.S. Are So Expensive. It is from CNBC, and it was shared on YouTube on December 26, 2018. They billed our insurance company over $3 million for the cost of transplant. Then I have another E, EOB right after it, which was another $1 million. So you're looking at a $4 million transplant. I don't know what people do without insurance. How, how could you even begin to pay that? We hear so much about how expensive medical bills are, we've almost become numb to it. In 2017, one-third of the money raised on GoFundMe went towards medical campaigns. And the site raises $650 million a year for more than 250,000 medical campaigns. Want to show me your room? Luca was born with alveolar capillary dysplasia and Hirschsprung's disease. At three weeks old, he had surgery to remove part of his colon. 
At two months, he went into cardiac arrest, and at five months, he had a lung transplant. His parents had to turn to fundraising almost immediately just to keep up with the medical bills. They did a clamshell approach, and he has several scars from all of the other surgery. So when did the U.S. healthcare system go from a philanthropic program to a multi-billion dollar industry? And where do the funds go once the bills are paid? Today, the U.S. healthcare system is in a sort of tug of war between physicians, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, shareholders, and insurance companies. The list goes on, but for this video, we'll just focus on these entities. Caught in the center of it all are the patients. We're often not able to provide the type of care that we want because of the cost of care. And those costs are now forcing a growing number of uninsured or underinsured Americans into traveling abroad for medical treatments. Everyone started thinking of healthcare as a business where the metrics were profit, return on investment, efficiency, and those aren't the metrics of health, but that's how we judge hospitals today. You would think that they would be looking out for your chronically ill children and, and the, you know all of the medications and, and things like parking at the hospital. No, no, it's not covered. But before we get to all of this, let's rewind to understand how we got here. This chart is a pretty good place to start. The data shows healthcare spending versus life expectancy. The rest of the world pretty much stays the same course, but around 1980, the U.S. veers off. I like to say it's kind of the, the road to hell is paved in good intentions because everything we've done was in the name of better health. To be clear, growth in U.S. healthcare spending has slowed over the past few years, but it's still way higher than in other wealthy countries. Before government programs like Medicare and Medicaid, Blue Cross and Blue Shield were the main providers of health insurance in the U.S. At the time, they were nonprofits and accepted everyone who wanted to sign up. But at this point, it wasn't to control costs. It was really insurance in a worst-case scenario. And after World War II, employers started offering health insurance. Suddenly, demand was booming. From 1940 to 1955, Americans with health insurance went from 10% to more than 60%. That demand created a business opportunity, and for-profit companies started rolling in. Insurance was the first sector because it's in some ways the original sin in the sense of it separated the consumer from payment, right? So it felt like nobody was paying. By 1951, Aetna and Cigna were major players in the for-profit health insurance market. And in 1965, President Johnson established Medicare and Medicaid. This medical insurance for those over 65 will become effective July 1st. Even so, the for-profit insurance market continued to gain steam through the 70s and the 80s, capturing more and more of the health insurance market. Meanwhile, the first for-profit hospitals started popping up around the country. When Medicare and Medicaid started, there were none. But by 1983, one in seven U.S. hospitals belonged to an investor-owned multi-hospital system. By the 90s, Blue Cross and Blue Shield had merged, but they were losing money, fast. And in 1994, they let their local companies turn to Wall Street to stay afloat. 
Hospitals, I think, were the first to realize, whoa, we can charge whatever we want for these things because it feels like no one's paying. But then, you know, there are all these doctors in the hospitals. They see all these business consultants coming in. They see the hospital CEO making, you know, $2 million a year. And they're feeling like, wow, we're suckers. You know, we're working our tails off here. And we want in too. Essentially, hospitals went from being run as a philanthropy to being run as a corporation. But these corporations aren't selling just another widget. They're putting a price on human health. The healthcare industry is now the country's biggest employer, and those employees need to get paid. Throughout all of this is private capital, and lots of it. You would think that if hospitals are becoming more efficient, the cost to consumers should go down too. But that hasn't necessarily been the case. And a lot of that has to do with the billing system. Of course, doctors need to get paid. There are admin costs and medical supplies and technology. But instead of this three-page bill you'd get in Belgium, medical bills in the U.S. look more like this. I am my son's secretary, and I spend a lot of time taking care of just, just medical bills and phone calls and that type of thing. We talk a lot about the billers and the coders and the consultants who really are removed from healthcare. They're not there because they care about health. They're there because they see a business opportunity. And, you know, you can't blame them in the sense that that's what their companies are supposed to do. They're looking for business. So a collection agency that does healthcare, you know, to them, a bill is a bill is a bill. They don't care if it's for somebody's heart transplant or someone who was not very judicious and spent a lot more money on a Rolex watch that they couldn't afford. It's a bill. But how come those bills are so long? It has to do with something doctors call unbundling. Think of it like buying a plane ticket. You pay for the ticket itself, but there are a lot of extra charges squeezed into your final bill. $30 for a checked bag, $50 for a few extra inches of leg room, and another $3 for water. You get the gist. People get irate about it and an airline ticket, but in healthcare, we've kind of come to accept it as, oh, that's just normal. And part of the reason I wrote the book is to say, that's not normal in other countries. Hospitals do this through a complex system of codes. New patient visit, 9920105. Emergency room visit, 9928185. Burn due to water skis on fire, V9107. Yeah. There really is a code in case your water skis burst into flames. You know, as they do. Different codes mean different prices. Just take the codes for a laceration. You'll be charged a different amount depending on the size of the cut, where it's at on your body, and how complex the suture is. Coding historically was about tracking diseases, right? But in the U.S., pretty much alone, how you code a, a patient interaction is a billing construct. Again, something that would had scientific and medical purpose gets translated into a business asset. Every day we spend hours going through check boxes, typing notes, documenting things that we're supposed to document for billing purposes that we really don't think improves patient care. And the more that we spend time with computers, the more that we spend time billing, that leaves a lot less time for face-to-face -face interaction with our patients. And that's why most of us went into medicine in the first place. There are benefits to taking down all that data. 
In theory, it can lead to better results in the long run. Doctors may find things later that they didn't catch in the moment, but at the end of the day, it's just not working in the U.S. Some doctors say they're concerned about malpractice lawsuits, so they order more tests to protect themselves. Bills keep getting longer, and health outcomes aren't always getting better. The American Hospital Association declined to comment on criticisms of the current hospital system. But they do have a fact sheet explaining that hospitals often don't get paid the full amount that they bill. The AHA claims two-thirds of community hospitals lose money when the government pays Medicare and Medicaid bills. And that, quote, the hospital payment system itself is broken. And of course, a big part of that healthcare spending is on drugs and supplies, both of which can be hard to get insurance to fully cover. Oh, thank you, Luca. Can you show us what's in that box? Are these your ostomy bags? So we get 10 per box, and that lasts me about two and a half days. What they're currently charging me is $1,178 this month for those boxes. Thank you. Let's talk about one of the biggest issues weighing on the pharma industry right now and that is drug prices. From $18 a tablet jumping to $750 a tablet, up 4,000% in just 24 hours. Do you feel badly about what's happening? No, in fact, we're increasing access to patients, Meg. We've all heard about Martin Shkreli raising the price of Daraprim, but what about colchicine or epinephrine? The prices of those drugs have both skyrocketed because one company has control over it. The response is usually the same. The companies need to raise prices to fund the research and development for the next drug. For the most part, high-priced drugs have patent protection from the government. They pretty much have a monopoly in a market. So very often you have someone who needs a, a specific cancer drug. There's one company that makes it. They're the only company that makes it. No one else can make it. And since it might be absolutely necessary for your life, they're in a position where they can charge anything they want. How is that possible? Well, there's not really anyone stopping it. Once people realized you can get away with this stuff, it became a race to the top. It's also important to remember that many of these costs are adding up during a very stressful time. Sometimes the people paying the bills aren't even conscious. The analogy I often make is firefighters when they come to a burning house. So when your house is on fire, your family's inside, you don't want to be sitting there negotiating with the firefighters. Oh, you know, I'm willing to pay you 300,000, they want 400. That's not how you want to do this, and often healthcare does have that character. Medical emergencies are chaotic, and health insurance is confusing. There are HMOs, PPOs, deductibles, copays, and premiums to try and make sense of. You'd think that if people are insured, they shouldn't have to pay that much out of pocket. But that's not always the case. Not every doctor accepts every insurance plan, and some hospitals have staff employed by multiple third-party companies. So one trip to the ER could get you five different bills, and your insurance might only cover one. I actually stopped taking ambulances, really. really. We had one really, really close call where uh, Luca was pretty unstable. We knew things were going south, and we drove him to the hospital instead. I sat in the back and slowly increased the oxygen um, the entire ride, and my husband was driving 120 miles down 95 because it was faster and cheaper for us to do it that way. Um, when you're being slammed with those type of bills, like you just can't occur any extra costs. And I'm a nurse, so I figured I was in the back seat, and if I had to do chest compressions, I was going to do chest compressions. <laughs> Today, nearly 30 million Americans are uninsured. 
That's down from roughly 55 million in 2010 before the Affordable Care Act. But it's still a higher percentage than countries like France, Japan, and Israel. The insurance companies are supposed to be negotiating their prices lower because in a lot of cases, they're ultimately the ones footing the bill. But as we've seen over the last few decades, that cost can still get passed on to consumers. Health costs can contribute to all sorts of inequalities in society. And so people who are poor or middle class even, they're just one serious illness away from a bankruptcy. So where do we go from here? Once there's all this money sloshing around in a system, there's this kind of pile-on effect where everyone wants to grab their bit of this huge pot of money. And now what we have as we're trying to take it back and reduce costs is everyone is desperately clinging to their piece of the pie. What are you doing? What are you doing, you big goof? Of course, healthcare costs have the potential to impact your personal budget if you're paying for insurance or when you get sick. But it also impacts the country's bottom line. The government currently spends more than a trillion dollars on healthcare, and the CBO expects spending on Medicare and Medicaid to double in the next 10 years. That's not just because the population is getting older. A large part of that spending will come from healthcare getting more expensive. There's no magic solution as to what to do next, but people are at least starting to think about the steps it'll take to turn things around. One is having a lot more transparency. Both doctors and patients and their families should have an understanding of roughly what it's going to cost them. Alternative route, having some sort of government manufacturing facility so that you could say to Shikali's, okay, you want to do that? Guess what? Next week we're going to be on the market and we're going to be selling this stuff for a dollar or two dollars a pill. <laughs> Ready, peekaboo. There is a very, very strong possibility that Luca will need a second lung transplant before he's 10 years old. Um, he's already had one. They will list him for a second. And right now, um, the policies in our healthcare system is they do not list him for a third. Um, so I do not know if I will see my child ever hit his teens or 20s. Um, it's pretty scary. Like, I don't know if I'll ever see him get married. It's, it's just so unknown. Pretty intense to really take all that in and think about all that. Um, you know, we all, to some degree, have our own experiences with this. Just like that mom and, and her young baby boy that has the issues. Um, how do we fix this? I think we need to put down, you know, you you listen to, go back in time and listen to a lot of the talk in campaigns and politics. And there's a lot from the eighties when all this started, you hear a lot of the conservatives are, Oh, regulation is bad for business. The government, you know, uh, thwarts competition and, and growth or, you know, the government, you know, something slips through. Oh, the government, you know, is clearly not able to do their job. Let's defund them. No, we need more regulation we need to fix the regulations that were already in place that have been uh, Jimmy rigged and people are finding ways around the door latch and we need to fix that. 
the three billionaires that played rocket competition and my rockets got more windows than yours and they flew into space, they need to be taxed heavily. No one should be taking home a billion dollars in salary per year. Again, like I said in the past, I'm not against you saving up money and having a billion dollars in your bank account. That's kudos to you. But every single one of us, businesses, people, everyone should be paying a flat tax. 10% to me is going to be the same impact as as 10% is going to be to Jeff Bezos. Straight, here's how much you made, here's how much you owe. And we need to make it so that we don't have to hire companies like H&R Block and third-party tax people to do this stuff. The government needs to have enough staff on hand where they can say, here's what was reported to us, here's what we we need from you. You either overpaid, here's your check, or you underpaid, you owe us this money. And I think that we need to simplify and streamline our government and our society. We need to tax the rich so that we can have programs that pay for the hospitals and the medical care, that give the education to people that want to be doctors and help out. I'm not saying, you know, pay medical school for someone who flunks all their classes. They have to pass the classes to get the perk. But if you want to be a teacher or you want to be a doctor and actually be the hands and feet of everything that is good in our world, you shouldn't have to be charging exorbitant costs to cover malpractice insurance, pay off your debts and pay your rent at the end of the month. We send we put more money into the NFL, the cheerleaders, and advertising beer than we do our teachers and our healthcare system. We need Medicare for all. Everybody should have insurance. There shouldn't be it shouldn't be employer based. Employers shouldn't have to be, you know, picking the cheapest healthcare plan to give a little bit more of a kickback to their shareholders. Everything should be funded. It should be one direction in, one direction out. If there's there's costs and whatnot, then those hospitals need to send it to the government and the government can say, hey, why are you charging for this? Nobody else does or whatever. But the fact that, you know, you can go to one hospital and that hospital is in your network and because they couldn't have a uh, full-time neurosurgeon on hand the time that you chose to come in or happen to come in through the situation. Um, and they had to bring one from another hospital nearby. There needs, the laws need to have an umbrella to where if you go to a hospital that is in your network and covered under any other situation, that doctor is practicing under the authority and flag of that hospital they need to be covered by any insurance that they do or don't have outside of that hospital the hospital needs to handle the billing and and all that jazz so the doctor can say hey i charge 900 for this service he needs to submit that bill to the hospital the hospital needs to submit it to insurance your insurance covers it 
and then it should be between the doctor and the hospital if there's a, if there's a discrepancy. That should not be going to the patient. Patients should not be choosing to pay the bills, put food on their table, keep a roof over their head, or go check out the pain in their stomach, abdomen, that could kill them, or could just be bad enchiladas. That's the American healthcare system. That is our great and amazing country. And yet we want to sit here and bash about, you know, socialized healthcare. It's not, you know, they showed a chart, which obviously you couldn't see because it's a podcast. But if you watch the video, they show a chart about the spending and America's spending per capita per for age has gone up higher faster than other countries. So I think that is where you could argue that ours is better. Like we spend a lot more money to have quote better healthcare, but again, at what cost? Because now it's been so deregulated since the eighties that it's becoming a business. How things are coded. Like I'm not even working in, in medical history or med- the medical field. And I think about that, like, you know, when I go in for my annual physical, do these people know this is my annual physical? Are they going to code it right? And it seems like every other time they do or they don't. Sometimes I get a bill. Sometimes I don't. Some, You know, I always get like the little $20 co-insurance thing from the live work. Like, that's expected. But it seems like sometimes my annual physical just isn't properly billed and there's like a hundred dollar or $14 bill that I have to pay. And, and there's this hesitancy to call and, and complain and try to get that lowered down. Cause like you look at the explanation of benefits and you see what was initially billed. You see that your insurance kicked in and it makes sense. And like you, you get that your healthcare might have plan might have like a $20 or 20% coinsurance. So then you're like, well, that looks about right. We don't question it. We just sit there and we pay it because we don't want it to go into collections. We don't want it to whatever. And then our banks are bankruptcies laws. Like you can't wipe off medical debt and student debt. That's the, that stays with you. So, you know, if you really want to be a, Jeff Bezos of the world, go into the medical field, start a great hospital and just nickel and dime everything. Your customers can't wipe it off of their credit history when they can't pay their bills because they can't get a job at the great employer of Amazon and, and pay for everything. They're working to the bone. They can't take a day off. It's just, it's ridiculous. And we need to get this fixed. So there's some other great videos out there that I've seen about this whole healthcare situation. And I think it's, it's definitely worth looking into other countries. And I'm not saying we need to abandon everything that our country has overnight, but we need to actually start doing something about it. We need to pick and choose like, We live in a great age of knowledge now. We know what other countries are doing as soon as they do it. We 
know what's happening across our country within minutes. We don't have to wait for, you know, some headline to go through an ex- exclusive wire that goes to the local newspaper and then we read about it tomorrow morning. This isn't the 40s anymore. We know what's happening. We can see what's happening in a real time. And I think that we can use that to our advantage. We can see where our country has failed and didn't have the foresight through no fault of our own back in the past in 1776. There's no way they had any idea what healthcare was or a ventilator or any of that. Like there's no way any of anything could be in, in there, you know, there, the constitution, that's why it's not all inclusive is because it grows with us. It grows with our values, and we change it to meet our needs today. A lot of historical documents are not all-inclusive. They give you a good shell of what was intended or what they knew at the time and what they believed, but we're supposed to constantly be building onto that foundation. And I think that we need to... Look at other countries and see what they do and pick and choose what needs to change or improve based on our values and what other countries are doing to meet those values. So anyway, I, as you can tell, definitely feel like this is a subject that needs to be talked about in length and I appreciate you joining me for this and making it all the way through to the end of the hour mark just now. So I appreciate you listening. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Let me know what your thoughts are. You can visit my website, everettpodcast.com. Send me a text, 208-391-2808. Or you can send me an email, mystory at everettpodcast.com. Again, my story, one word, my story at everettpodcast.com look forward to talking to you again next week hopefully soon i'll join you for the next podcast until then have a great one thank you for listening join the conversation send a text message or leave a voicemail at 208-391-2808 be sure to like follow and subscribe facebook instagram twitter YouTube, and several podcasting platforms. All the information at everettmcconaughey.com.